Faces. Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. My name is Scott Allen, and I am the host of Phronesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. I am an associate professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. I'm an author, an entrepreneur, a speaker, a nonprofit founder, and the host of two podcasts. I'm also a husband and dad of three. You just heard from Kate, my daughter, who wrote and performed the Phronesis intro. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion on all things leadership. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover timely, relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. Now, I am proud to share that Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ilaglobalnetwork.org. If you like what we're up to, please click subscribe so you can stay up to date as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others. And now, today's show. Good evening, good afternoon, good morning, wherever you are in the world. Today on Phronesis, we have Dr. Robert Livingston. He is a social psychologist and one of the nation's leading experts on the science underlying bias and racism in organizations. Now, for more than two decades, he has consulted Fortune 500 companies. He is at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Before that, he was at the University of Wisconsin, Northwestern. He has served at the University of Sussex. He is a gentleman who has published in the world's best journals, Academy of Management Journal, Leadership Quarterly, Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. And today, we're going to talk about his latest book, The Conversation, How Seeking and Speaking the Truth About Racism Can Radically Transform Individuals and Organizations. Robert, if you would, fill in some blanks, sir. What what do we need to know about you before we jump into our conversation about the conversation? Well, first of all, thank you, Scott, uh, for inviting me on this program. I'm excited to be here to talk about my book. And uh, one thing to know is I'm currently on a beautiful island um, overlooking the bay. I'm, I'm in Bermuda at the moment. Oof. So uh, I've taken time out of my vacation to have this conversation, I think, is both engaging and important. Um, and yeah, what can I tell you about me? I'm just an ordinary guy who's trying to um, tackle an extraordinary problem in a different sort of way. Well, and I said to you before we jumped on the conversation today, Ernest Boyer, and I will put a, a, a link to the, in the show notes, who wrote about the scholarship of discovery, the scholarship of integration, the scholarship of teaching and learning. Uh, this book integrates so many, so many different branches of thinking, whether that's sociology, anthropology, philosophy, psychology, leadership. I mean, it's just expansive, your command of these different disciplines. Have you always had this perspective of, of integrating seemingly disparate bodies of literature and putting them into one place to try and understand something? It's really remarkable. Well, 
I think my life in many ways is an integrated, disparate body of literature. So, (laughs) you know, before I got my PhD in social psychology, I was actually getting a PhD in romance literature and linguistics. Really? Um, Yeah. So I was at UCLA um, studying a PhD in romance literature and linguistics and was looking at themes of oppression in 19th century Latin American literature which is, you know, why some people say when they read the book, you're, you're a really good storyteller. Well, I've read lots of books, <laughs> literature. So, um, and, and, you know, I happened to be hiking in Joshua Tree and became good friends with a graduate student who was in the psychology department and said, you know, there's a field where you can study this in the real world, not just in literature. And I, I didn't know anything about social psychology. So um, I audited a class and I was hooked and, and that sort of led me in a different direction. And I think that's kind of been how I've led my life, even in terms of my academic jobs. You know, you mentioned Wisconsin and, uh, you know, the different places, Northwestern and and England and and now Harvard. They were also different types of appointments in different Mm -hmm. departments. So at Wisconsin, I was in the Department of Psychology and African-American Studies and Northwestern. I was in the business school. Yeah. Now I'm in the public policy school. So, you know, I just I, I guess my life in many ways is is one of a free spirit, at least intellectually, that's um, open to exploring the world from lots of different lenses and lots of different disciplines and lots of perspectives. So that's kind of been my life for the last 35 years. And it's great that you see some of that in the book. Well, I see. I see so much in this book, and like I told you before we started, I've spent the first part of my summer with you. Whether it's you know, you tell a story in the book about Giaga Lake. My wife worked at Giaga Lake, and I told her kind of your narrative, and and she she worked in the the pearl exhibit, so she would you know open up oysters and give someone a pearl, and 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 she said something similar to what you said. I, I can't believe I was a part of that. I didn't know any different. I didn't know any better, but I couldn't believe I was a part of that. And so it's really, really interesting. You're an incredible storyteller. And there's some things that you say. I often think of maybe M. Scott Peck, the opening line of that book, Life is Difficult, The Road Less Traveled, or, you know, Collins with Good to Great, Good is the Enemy of Great. You have some some lines in this book that will just forever stick with me. And, and one of them, and we're going to talk about a few of them today, but one of them I think is just beautifully said. And it's when it comes to performing mental gymnastics, most of us are Olympic athletes. And I think that kind of gets to a, a piece of this conversation that we can tell ourselves we are masterful tele- storytellers, and at times we tell ourselves some pretty fascinating stories. And so you dig into some of that and talk about denial, ego defense, threat, need for power. But would you talk a little bit about that phrasing? I, I love that phrasing. When it comes to performing mental gymnastics, most of us are Olympic athletes. I think I can explain that from a variety of different perspectives, I think one of the goals of that sentence was to depathologize delusion. We, we tend to think of delusion or what we call more specifically motivated reasoning as being something that crazy people do or that, I don't know, weak people do or that uh, devious people do to, to rationalize their misdeeds. 
And what I was trying to say is two things. One, all of us do it. And yes. the second is all of us do it really well. Yes. So think about a time when maybe you were in love with someone who may not have been the best person and everyone around you is giving you evidence to the fact that this person is someone you maybe shouldn't be with. And you're saying, no, 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 you misunderstand. There's this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, everybody has done that or it, with people's children, when you have a little demon and the teacher saying no, and you're like, my angel, no way. <laughs> so, you know, it's not just with regard to racism. It's with regard to life that it's part of what we do. You know, um, Shelley Taylor, who's a social psychologist at UCLA, um, has a, a kinder expression for it. She calls them positive illusions. Uh, and we create positive illusions, uh, illusions because they're not accurate or real, positive because they make the world rosier than it really is. And that's sort of how we cope with the hardships of life. And so I just wanted to raise people's awareness of our tendency as humans to do that and how it might interfere with a more accurate perception of the world. Because when you say, you know, racism doesn't exist or the world's a good place or bad things don't happen to good people, you really have to step back and wonder whether that's the truth or whether that's some belief that you're invested in holding. And that's why the subtitle of my book is, you know, the conversation, because we should talk about it, how seeking and speaking the truth about mm -hmm. racism can radically transform individuals and organizations. So there's two parts to that. One is you have to seek it because, you know, the truth is not just something that falls into your lap. It's a constant journey uh, and it's a, a changing journey uh, when you're in search of the truth. But that should be the endeavor and then you should talk to people about it. So that's kind of at the core of solving this problem is beginning with the truth and our mental gymnastics in many respects, even if it's a normal part of our cognitive functioning, can get in the way of that pursuit of the truth. Yeah. And and actually early in the book, I, th I think I wrote Keegan on, on one of the pages. And then, of course, you mentioned Keegan's immunity to change, which is dancing around a similar concept that... that we oftentimes engage in behaviors that are not in our best interest, but we have some masterful ways of telling ourselves stories or justifying our behavior and not acknowledging some of those competing commitments or mm -hmm. just the realm of the brain continues to be a fascinating place. And, and you also have this really, it's just a pointed sentence in the book that stood out for me that, again, I'll never forget. If we summarize the origins of racism and sexism in a, into a single word, it's power. The desire to maintain power and the fear of losing power. I think, again, you just synthesize it so beautifully there. Would you talk to that a little bit? Power. Sure. Um, and, and, you know, later on, I, I write another sentence that kind of builds on the one that you just read, which is, the heart of racism is power and the soul of racism is fear hmm. with the heart striving to protect the soul. You know, what it gets down to in many ways is that we as humans, we want to be special. Um, we also want to be safe. Um, and so uh, in many ways, we have fears. Everyone has fears in life. And one of the ways that we deal with being afraid is trying to be powerful. 
you even see this in the animal kingdom. There are lots of animals, you know, if you look at a, a blowfish, right? When it's afraid, it puffs itself up with yeah. spikes to say, oh, look at me, I'm so powerful, right? Or lizards that have a hood that comes up that says, oh, look at me, I'm twice as big. Um, and it's because they're scared. And a lot of the posturing, and even when you look at little dogs like chihuahuas and Pomeranians, yeah. you know, they just bark like crazy. But you don't <laughs> get that from Great Danes and St. Bernard's to the same extent because, you know, something goes down, they can handle it. So they don't have to posture in a way. And so I think people have to realize the inextricable link between fear and power, or at least desire for power. Yeah. And I think it's important to realize how when people feel good about themselves, and I talk about this a lot in the book, it drastically reduces the likelihood that racism will occur. Hmm. It drastically reduces the likelihood that sexism will occur. So much of racism and sexism is grounded in people's ego, people's desire to feel better than. In fact, you know, a lot of historians argue quite convincingly that slavery was not in the best interest of most white people. Hmm. It may have been in the economic interest of enslavers, plantation owners, but for most white people, it actually drove down wages and it made them more impoverished. But what it gave them in return was a certain social capital to say, you're special, you're white, you're better than you know X or Y group, whether it's indigenous populations or African groups. And they took it. It was this egotistical salve for a really miserable life. And we've been paying the price ever since. And I think when people get away from this need to feel better than, to, to compete with other people rather than cooperate, to feel superior, which is all grounded in insecurity. That's what yes. I mean by fear. So when I say fear, I don't mean mortal fear, like the kind of fear you experience when you know a lion is right in front of you. A more ego-based fear that you're not enough or that you're less than and the power sort of assuages that feeling of inadequacy or impotence or insignificance that's kind of where i was going well and, and you say beautifully that feelings of insecurity uncertainty and significance fuel racism and a more secure and happy person is a more tolerant person you can reduce prejudice simply by feeling good calm and secure. And you mentioned also what I would kind of leap to, challenge me if this is an incorrect leap, but that whole quote, the very powerful quote by Lyndon Johnson, I had never seen this, that low road capitalism, kind of the concept, I'd never heard of this concept. But Johnson's quote, if you can convince the lowest white man, he's better than the best colored man, he won't notice you're picking his pocket. He'll give him somebody to look down on, and he'll empty his pockets for you. So does that, does that align with what, in some ways, you just said about it's not in the best interest of anyone, except for maybe these plantation owners? Exactly. It, 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 that absolutely aligns with not only what Lyndon Johnson said you know, several decades ago, you know, over, over 60 years ago, but also what we saw on January 6th this year, and a lot of the seemingly irrational behaviors that you know political scientists and social scientists are, are, are struggling to, to make sense of when we see people not acting in their own economic interest by empowering politicians, 
that give tax cuts to the rich or, you know, people say, why would they do that? You have to take more of a social capital lens when you try to examine this problem rather than just thinking about what's in your own economic uh, self-interest. And often people will pay dearly for their ego. And we see it in lots of different uh, circumstances. So I think that's what we're seeing. And I think savvy, rich white people are exploiting it as they always have for the last 400 years. You know, here we are. You know, Heather McGee wrote a really fantastic book a few months ago called The Sum of Us, where she's actually making the case that there is a large collective interest involved with eradicating racism, that most white people would actually benefit tremendously if we, you know, eradicated racism from our politics and everyone had access to good education and everyone had access to colleges. And, you know, she uses this metaphor of the swimming pool and how there was a community that would rather drain the swimming pool where no one can swim rather than integrate the pool. And so I'm going to cut off my nose to spite my face kind of thing. Yep. And it's all based on pride. Um, there, there's no other explanation. And people are willing to pay dearly, give up you know, precious resources for the sake of their pride and false sense of superiority. And, and you know, in many ways that defies logic. But as economists have learned, people are not rational. Uh, <laughs> and there have been Academy or, you know, not, Nobel prizes one you know Daniel Kahneman is 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 one such person who's dedicated his whole life to showing just how irrational people can be and how driven by emotions and illusions they can be when making judgments and decisions about the world and others yeah and in the in the book you define racism and i i would love to i would love to explore this definition a little bit because I think it's important. I think it's very, very important. Racism occurs when individuals or institutions show more favorable evaluation or treatment of an individual or groups based on race or ethnicity. Would you talk a little bit about that definition? Mm -hmm. First, let me start with, you know, most people's lay definition of racism. They think it necessarily involves hatred or malice or some intention to uh, treat another group negatively, more negatively than their own group. And I'm saying a couple of things. One, I'm saying racism is just disparity. So it doesn't have to be negativity. It can be more positivity towards your own group relative to another group. So if you're Mm -hmm. neutral towards an out group and, and super positive towards your own group, and that creates a disparity in how the two groups are treated, then it's racism, even though there is no, not only is there not hatred, there's not negativity. The second thing is, you know, it can be based on one's evaluations or thoughts, or it can be based on actions or decisions. It can be either or. You know, I think this is important because when you think about racism as disparity, and I'll tell you a story, there was a, um, a police department I was working with And the chief of the department and I were talking about, you know, all the problems that had been experienced in this community. You know, he was saying, I don't think I have any officers that are racist. And, you know, he said, if I had to estimate the percentage, I would say it's like 1% of officers that are racist. Hmm. And I said, interesting. So let me, you know, kind of paint a scenario for you. Imagine there's a group of teenagers around 14 or 15 who are just horsing around. You know, you've got uh, cones set up in the road. They're moving the cones, putting them on their head, acting silly, as teenagers do sometimes. 
And in one world, those teenagers are 14, 15-year-old white teenagers. And in another world, they're 14 or 15-year-old black teenagers. Imagine you could transport you know, all your officers to these two worlds, right? Which is all, already a metaphysical sci-fi experiment. But imagine they could experience those worlds. How many of your officers do you think would deal with those black teenagers differently than they would deal with those white teenagers? And then he said about 85% would, you know, treat the black teenagers probably differently. You know, he said, I, I, you know, they, they may not you know, shoot them and kill them, but they would be harsher on the black teenagers uh, than they would be on the white teenagers. I said, well, that's racism. <laughs> uh, mm. That's treating people differently. That's a disparity in, 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 in treatment. And similarly with Micaiah Bryant, you know, the, the, the young girl that was shot in Columbus, Ohio, and many people said, oh, she was carrying a knife and he had no choice in shooting her, you know, save the life of the other girl that she was about to attack. Um, and so therefore, you know, that's what officers do. That's that's not racism. But the real question for me is, would the officer, would he have responded in the same way if the scenario had involved all white people? Hmm. And if the answer is yes, then there is no racism. Uh, if he would have responded in exactly the same way. But if the answer is no, if he had tried to tackle the girl or somehow knock the knife out of her hand or do some other action besides, you know, pumping three or four bullets or however many times he, sh he, he shot this young lady, then it would be an act of racism, even though it's quote unquote justified. So I pretty much say racism resides in the Delta. Uh, and not the Bayou Delta, but the Delta meaning the change or the difference in how people are treated. If you give a black person a ticket for jaywalking, it is racism if white people don't get a ticket for jaywalking, despite the fact that it's against the law to jaywalk. Yeah. Uh, and that in the law they call disparate impact, I believe. That's kind of what I'm getting at. And when you define racism in that way, you see a lot more of it than yep. if you define it as just hatred or malice or intent to harm. Uh, and then in subsequent chapters, I go deeper because this is starting off with a rudimentary definition of racism. And then I talk about how it's embedded in systems and yep. how laws and policies are created to produce this disparity in how groups are treated um, in ways that are invisible because it's so deeply uh, in, embedded in the system. And at least as you're speaking, it makes me think of another, uh, another piece that really kind of stood out for me when it comes to you know, some of the thought experiments that you, in a very beautiful way, at least I had to read three or four times just to, okay, this is what he's communicating. And it's, and it, it literally, I believe, created some new neuronal connections in my brain. So you've done that, <laughs> sir. <laughs> some things that weren't connected all of a sudden connected. Happy you said help. this. I mean, it's a really interesting statement. It's a, it's a beautifully thought-through statement. Is there an act committed by a U.S.-born white man, no matter how heinous, that could get Americans behind a ban of white men from the country? Mm. No. And we have example after example after example after example of that. Yet we have those conversations about other populations that that aren't that aren't fair, appropriate, isolated. 
when there's so much data in front of us about white men and the heinous mm -hmm. things that they have that they have perpetrated and that double standard yeah which you know speaks to two things you know one is you know many politicians debated whether the muslim ban was racist and i think you know most people realize it is but if you look at it this way then it certainly is because yeah. you're saying you know my perceived propensity of something happening even if it's true, you know, even if there are, uh, I, which we know it's not, the, the percentage uh, of the Muslim population that is engaged in any sort of acts of terror or mass destruction against the United States is minuscule. But the fact that these rare actions could lead to a ban of an entire population of hundreds of millions of people, despite the fact that white men have done the same thing. They've blown up government buildings. They've killed people. And I, I mean, we've got Timothy McVeigh. We've got lots of examples of, of white domestic terrorists who hated the United States. They were anti-government or more mundane examples of mass shootings. The Vegas shooter, for example, yep. you know, is still um, the, the greatest mass casualty on American soil. And the conversations revolve around, oh, well, you know, did he need help? Um, did people? And there's there's even this bizarre compassion yes. that you see when white men commit these very despicable acts of violence and and murder. Um, it's gosh, wish we could have helped him. You know, the, the the you know deeper message being, I'm sure he was a great guy that just mm -hmm. needed right. So there's this inherent benevolence of whiteness. But this inherent evil of people of color when they perpetrate the same actions. And, and I think people have to stop and think about that for a moment. Well, you know, well, he was a veteran and was suffering from PTSD. Yeah. So it's explained away in a very different manner, an unfair manner that once you start seeing that, it's, it's kind of disgusting. Yeah. It's really disgusting. And, you know, it's often, oh, he was stressed because, you know, he'd lost his job and couldn't, you know, there's there's always a, a, an alibi of sorts, um, yeah. no matter what happens. Even for this man who murdered um, in the supermarket a grandmother and her two-year-old or three-year-old um, grandchild, I don't know, you know, there was all this um, effort by the media to sort of uncover what went wrong with him. Right. And you don't see that same amount of grace um, or effort to understanding what would drive certain people to extremism <clears throat> or wanting to, you know, um, commit some of the acts that they commit against the state. You know, how desperate is their situation? And again, it's not justifying either of these examples. It's just a really marked difference in people's attempt to understand uh, what's driving the behaviors. And when you have outgroups, there's no effort to understand what they were thinking. It's just they were bad. They're evil. We need to get rid of them. We need to ban them. Um, so that in itself, based on my definition, because you're treating people differently, yeah. uh, is racism. Yeah. On this one group, well, we need to explore the complexity of this whole challenge. In this other group, it's, oh, they're bad. Yeah. And, and – and you, you said another statistic in the, in the book that really, and this kind of gets to stereotypes, but you said a statistic or you wrote about a statistic that really just floored me. Of the 26,000 roles featuring black people, 60% of the roles had them as gangsters or thugs. 60%. In Hollywood. 
in mm-hmm. Hollywood. I, again, I, I, I find that just, it floored me. And it's even more appalling when you consider the fact that most gang members, so if we're looking at reality, are not black. So, it is, you know, it would be one thing if they did it. And okay, 60% of people who are in gangs are really black. But you, we continually see in the media and in Hollywood, so both, you know, news and fictitious representations, bad events, um, whether it's shootings or criminality of or gangs, we see an overrepresentation of black people, people of color uh, more broadly, uh, same with the Latinx population and an underrepresentation of white people. So in other words, you know, you see black people depicted as criminals more often than their actual occurrence of criminality. Robert, you spend a lot of time in the book really nicely providing some definitions and helping the reader really understand how you're defining how you're thinking about these things whether it's discrimination or prejudice you have you, you really define these and then you do a wonderful job of again looking at these very different bodies of literature and providing the listener with the facts right mm-hmm. and and i think it's a core tenet of yours is that how do we begin these conversations with some of those definitions and with some of those facts at our disposal right mhm What suggestions do you have or what insights do you have about then creating a space where that dialogue occurs in a really effective way? What are Mm -hmm. some mistakes you see occur? Mm -hmm. And and what when it works well, when the conversation really, really gets to a positive place, a place of understanding and empathy, what are some ingredients there? Mm -hmm. So... um I think the very first question that people should ask themselves is, why am I having the conversation? And for some people, it has no relationship to the truth whatsoever. Uh, so let me give you a, a different example, a courtroom example, okay. which is, you know, if, if we have a, a criminal trial, uh, we have a prosecutor, we have a defender, we have jurors, we have judge. One could argue that the prosecutor or the defender are not really interested in the truth. That's not their job once they get to court. It might be their job before they get to court. They might want to understand. In many cases, the defender might know my client is guilty. But once you get to the courtroom, it's not about the truth. It's about what we would call advocacy rather than inquiry. Okay. Uh, and actually, the Latin word for lawyer is advocatus, which, you know, and in French, it's avocat, even. And so there's something baked into this advocacy role when when you when you assume that that you know occupation at least in the courtroom that your job is to advocate for your client it's not really to explore the truth or have a you know think tank session on what really happened that's the juror's job and that's the judge's job so when people come into conversations about race often they adopt a strong advocacy position their job or their objective is not to listen to anybody <laughs> It's to go in and, like a lawyer, argue for your case, selectively choosing evidence, selectively doing And that's why our society has become more and more polarized, is I think we've become more deeply entrenched in this advocacy role rather than as a community sort of listening to one another. So what I think would help the conversation are two things. One, learn the facts on your own. So what makes it even worse is that many people who have strong advocacy positions have very little information. 
yeah. about anything. And so that's a wicked combination to, to be both headstrong and ignorant. Then you're not going to go anywhere. The, yep. the sort of going to bang your head against the wall. And, and I think there's going to be little progress. So the first thing, and I, I mentioned the book, you know, education, conversation and action in that order. That's kind of the three stage approach. Um, and so learn about history, learn about, um, you, you know, what goes on in organizations, find out as much data as you can from as many different sources and then talk to people about it with sort of a spirit of curiosity yeah, rather than conviction that you know everything. I mean, I've been studying this stuff for a long, long time and I learn new stuff all the time. So it cracks me up when people say, oh, I know all this stuff already. <laughs> Because I am sure that they don't. How do I know that? Because no one does. <laughs> so that already, what were you going to say, Scott? Oh, I was just going to say, and in fact, the educated person says how little they know. <laughs> exactly. And they're aware of it. <laughs> exactly. You're absolutely right. They man. know that they need to be curious because there's a lot out there. <laughs> exactly. You know, you're 100% right. So I think, you know, there are many things I could talk about. I could give you, you know, five different things that would facilitate a productive conversation. But I think one of them is how you approach it. And I would encourage people to adopt more of a spirit of inquiry rather than advocacy, you know, unless the goal is to tell someone off or or just win, you know, because then it's not learning. It's something else. Like I want to humiliate someone or I want to target and express aggression towards people. Okay. You know, I, again, I try to be very agnostic and non-judgmental in this, but at least know that you're not having a conversation. Yeah. It, you're actually doing something else. So I think when you have a conversation, you both inform yourself and you approach the situation with a certain level of inquiry. Yeah. And so we have, we have the Understand the definitions, understand the the research, the data, what's out there. It's are you entering the conversation in a space from a from a perspective of inquiry and curiosity and seeking to understand and really learn in that. And if you emerge from that in a space where you begin to see the world through a different lens, you begin to see some of what you have laid at people's feet in a very, very beautiful way. You know, you mentioned this quote by John Lewis, which is, you know, if you see something that is not right, say something, do something. Mm -hmm. And so that third part of the book, as you mentioned, is about action Mm -hmm. and making a difference. Mm -hmm. And are there a couple of ways that you think about that when you're talking with with folks? Because I I, I know, and you write about it in the book a little bit, I get asked all the time, do you have a six-point checklist of what I can do tomorrow? Mm -hmm. And I think... Maybe as we wind down our time together, just tee up a couple ways for people to think about that, the, the action component of all of this. Yeah. There's a lot I could say, because I think those were the longest chapters in the entire book. Um, and they were about, I don't know, 70 pages between the things that individuals can do and then the things leaders and organizations can do. So I'm going to think about which tidbits from that I want to extract. But first, I want to say, and this relates to the last question, Scott, about the conversation, and it also relates to this question about action, because I'm sure there are listeners who are thinking, well, how can I have a conversation with someone who, you know, clearly doesn't want to have a conversation or clearly doesn't get it or isn't trying to get it? And I think those that's, that's a great point. I think people have to be aware that there's at least three types of people, what I call dolphins, 
ostriches and sharks. Mm. Dolphins are people who are, you know, concerned about community. They're friendly. They want to be part of the pod. Um, they may bump beaks sometimes, but they're generally good and they're generally benevolent and they generally want the best for the community. Ostriches are sort of apathetic or indifferent. They kind of bury their heads in the sand. It's back to that motivated reasoning that I was talking about or the mental gymnastics. You know, they just they don't want to see, you know, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. They just kind of want to not get involved one way or the other. So they're not really pro-community. They're not anti-community. They just are pro-self. They want to do what's in their own self-interest. So they're what we call individualists. Dolphins are pro-socials. And then you have sharks, the third type. They are not indifferent. They're actually anti-cooperation. What they want is to dominate. They want to exploit. They want to rule the seas. So what I what I say is when people are having conversations, it's it's kind of important to know whether you're talking to a dolphin, an ostrich, or a shark. Because research has shown that if you're talking to it and you know they're respectively about you know, 48% of the population, 38% of the population, and 14% of the population, or okay. something like that. That's kind of the distribution of dolphins, ostriches, and sharks, relatively speaking. So about one out of eight people are sharks. You're wasting your breath if you try to have a conversation with sharks because they don't respond to moral appeals, which would be one of the goals of the conversation. They don't even respond to carrots, which ostriches do. They respond to sticks. So with them, you have to have negative incentives. Um, So I'll give you an example using, um, you know, the vaccines. When they first rolled out, about half the population said, we're going to do this because we want to protect the community. We want to do things. About another third responded or slightly less than a third once they rolled out incentives. So, you know, Ohio had the vaccinillion. If you get vaccinated, give you a lottery ticket. You, your kid can go to school for free or or the, the free beer from Miller. If you, you know, I put on – Robert, real quick, I put on LinkedIn one day. That would be a fascinating study to get into the minds of the people who that's what brought them over the edge. The free Miller Lite, right? You know, that's a cool group of people to study. It is, you know, and, and I think in some states it was you get a free gun or something like someone oh, was wow. telling me. But, you know, but my thing is from a community standpoint, the action is more important than sort of the reason underlying it. So the fact that they went out and got the vaccine and it's now benefiting the community, even if it was for a case of beer, as you mentioned, I think it's really interesting to understand their psychology. But what's important from a practical standpoint was their action. They actually got it done. So you can get ostriches to pull their heads out of the sand and do, you know, get on board with it if you give them a carrot. Right. Yeah. And, and again, for dolphins, you don't need a carrot. You just need the moral appeal. So now we've got the moral case. The business case, if you will. Yep. And then the, the the sharks don't respond to either one of those. Mm-hmm. So there are people that, despite the fact that they could get free beer or whatever they value, despite the fact they could get a scholarship, a million dollars, they're just not going to get the vaccine. Yeah. They're like over my dead body. And we've seen in Texas, there are people literally have tried to sue, right? Literally. That may be the case. Literally. Absolutely. In some cases now, yes. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's unfortunate. I think it's sad. But, you, you know... Um, there are people who are just very resistant to it. So you can't get them to get on board no matter what, um, unless you say, you know, you can't come to work. Then some of them will, will finally bend and do it. And some of them won't. They'll quit the job and sue you. So I think it's important to sort of know. 
So where am I going? When we talk about actions, you have to be nimble and have a diverse toolkit. And I think organizations have to have a diverse toolkit when it comes to interventions that will get people to engage in anti-racist actions. So, you know, I talk about the individual approach, the cultural approach, and the institutional approach. And individual approaches, you know, change people's hearts and minds. And, and, and that's, you know, something you can do and people can do. Individuals can confront racism when they see it. And, and that changes not only another individual's behavior, it changes the social norms because now you've signaled to people that's not cool. That's not okay. Uh, then it's culture. You know, how is the leader modeling what the leader wants to see in the yeah. organization? And then we've got institutional, which I think are the most important, which are laws, policies, and practices that actually provide a stick, if you will, to say, if you don't do these things, you can be arrested or you can be sued or you can be fired or whatever the sanction happens to be. And I think having a combination of the three of those institutional cultural that focus on social norms, which I think the last administration had a big impact on. It became more okay to be overtly racist. And because of those more lax social norms, because we've already seen those online, you can be who you want to be online. There are no norms that dissuade you. Uh, and then policies. Um, I think a lot of protections in terms of the law were also eroded. So that led to a lot more individual acts of hatred. Robert, I... I am so thankful for your time today. You know, in the towards the end of the book, or actually it was at the end of the book, you wrote a couple of things that stood out for me. You said, uh, my hope is the book, that the book has inspired you. And I'm raising my hand and saying that it did. And, and I also read your words, I appreciate each reader's decision to allow my words to fill their minds and hearts. And um, thank you for the incredible work that you do. And... It's very, very much appreciated. And again, you are thinking about this in such an integrative and wonderful way. It's inspiring. And really quick before we close out for the day, is there anything that you've been reading or streaming or listening to that's caught your eye? It doesn't have to do with anything that we've just discussed, but is there anything on your radar that you think listeners would enjoy learning about? Yes, there are lots of things. So I just... Um, spoke to uh, a good friend and colleague of mine, Cecilia Ridgway, who wrote a book called Status. And um, it's a book about why we as humans have to form hierarchies in the first place and and why people spend so much of their energy um, seeking status, whether it's through the clothes that they wear or the job titles that they have or um, the way that they look or, or, or any number of things. Um, and you see it in lots of primate species. And, and so it's an interesting book because I think in many ways it forms the foundation of what we were talking about earlier, which is this need um, to feel better than other people rather than people just defining their own standards of who they are and living up to that. Because I think there's a difference between ambition and competition. And yeah. ambition is fine because you set your own goals and you say, I want to meet it. Competition is I want to be better than someone else. Um, and and I, I want to move people more towards ambition and away from competition. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the, the other thing that, that I want to say just in closing, Scott, and it's um, related to what you just mentioned. You know, I wouldn't have written the book. I wouldn't have spent all the energy. Right. And it was a lot. It was a really intense process uh, writing the book. If I didn't believe that this was a solvable problem. Yeah. And I am convinced that racism is a solvable problem. A hundred percent. 
whether it will be solved or not is an entirely different story. And uh, before we came on, you and I were talking about different diets and things. And, you know, it's almost like weight loss. Like in many cases, for most people, it's, it's, it's a solvable goal. It's an achievable goal. But whether people achieve it or not, or smoking, you know, you can stop smoking. That's a doable thing. But whether people will do it or not is a different question. And so for me, I've tried to lay out a compass and roadmap that will help get people from that, you know, solvability to solved. Mm. Well, thank you for the work that you do, sir. It's been a pleasure getting to know you. I know that listeners are going to uh, love the conversation we had. Uh, they are going to really, I, I would implore our listeners to seek out this book and explore its contents. It's actually, it's just absolutely wonderful. And thank you, sir. Thank you for calling in from, from your island home for the time and being with us today. Thanks for having me. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Each one of us are continual works in progress. If there's one thing this podcast has taught me, it's that I will never know it all. And that's what I love about this topic of leadership, but that's also what's so frustrating about this topic of leadership. This process of hosting this podcast has brought back front and center for me that I need to stay in a continual space of learning. And I love that about this podcast. I love that it affords me an opportunity and hopefully you as listeners an opportunity to continue your learning. Now for Dr. Livingston, he has helped me see some of these topics in a very new light. Again, the piece of integrated scholarship that he put together, pulling from so many different domains, has built a case that will forever shift how I see this topic. It will shift how I feel like I need to engage in this topic. And it will shift how I educate others when it comes to this topic. So for that, Dr. Livingston, I say thank you. Thank you very, very much for the work that you do. And thanks to you for helping me learn, develop, and grow. You, my friend, have just finished another episode of Phronesis Practical Wisdom for Leaders. To get in touch with me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Now, if you have feedback, I would love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening to Phrenesis. If you like Phrenesis, I have a second podcast. It's called the Captovation Podcast. That's with an O, Captovation Podcast, where I speak with experts on the topic of designing and delivering incredible presentations. And now, Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.